It's a letdown and you find out how you're really doing. You're at church, but are you truly in a place of worship? I don't mean the walls and the pews. I mean, are you are you in a place of worship right now? You're being a good Christian, but you're living a good Christian life. Is the heart of it all slipping away on you? If you're serious about advancing God's kingdom, but would a trial expose a lack of focus, a lack of perspective? I think this passage speaks exactly to that. Elijah's doing great. I mean, he's doing amazing things. I mean, he pronounces boldly to a king that will kill him in a heartbeat, tells him, there's going to be a famine, there's going to be a drought, your kingdom's going to be destroyed. See you later. And he goes out and he doesn't know where he's going to eat or how he's going to get food. He just said a famine's going to hit the land. Ravens come and bring him stuff. And then when the guy says, the ravens are, I'm done with the raven thing. I'm going to teach you something else. Takes him to a widow. And he experiences the widow's house. He tells the widow that the oil is not going to run out. The flour is not going to run out. This little handful you have left, feed it to me. And it won't run out. And they live on that. Day after day after day. Then the widow's son dies. And he goes, hold on a second. He takes him upstairs into the room where he stayed. And he measured himself against that child. And he prayed. And the child came back to life. Then he goes and meets Obadiah, and Obadiah is afraid. I don't want to go tell Ahab you're here. Go tell him you're here because I serve the Lord of hosts. Elijah is an amazing example of what God can do through someone. But like that, you find out where your focus really is. Let's look at that passage that Bonnie read for us in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19 is where we most see that Elijah truly was a man just like us. He he was not a superhuman, impervious to real feelings. This, he finds himself in a dark place. Look at just the first three verses. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel, the one who was really running the kingdom, tells Elijah, I'm going to kill you. But she sends a messenger to go say it. And so some scholars think maybe it was just a threat to get him out of there. But it works because in verse 3, this man who just defeated the prophets of Baal in the previous chapter, saw God do an amazing thing, killed the false prophets of Baal. And then in verse 3, he says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Ran for his life. I find it interesting, it said he left, he went to Beersheba and then left the servant there. I mean, when you're afraid, don't you want company? But, but he left his servant there because he needed to be alone. And the reason why he needed to be alone was because of verse 4. Look at what it says in verse 4. But he himself, after he left his servant, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came 
and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is not just tired. Elijah's just not like, uh, ministry is not for me. I think I'm going to try farming. He's done with life. He's at the end of his rope. And he didn't want his servant to be there when he prayed that. And so he left the person that is closest to him, probably the only physical company he had left, and went out into the middle of the wilderness and asked God for death. Now, he's not suicidal. He's not suicidal because Elijah recognizes something that's a theme throughout Scripture, that God is the rightful owner of life. God takes away, God gives, God gives, God takes away. And we have no right to reverse either of those. But he offers a prayer request. God, you're the giver and taker of life. Can you take it, please? Because I'm done. And I think it was a sincere prayer. I think Elijah really was in that place. Elijah was in a dark place. And it's, it's ironic, isn't it? He, he runs because he fears for his life, but then he detests his life. I mean, he's running so he can live, but then he's asking that he dies. And on the one hand, he's trying to protect his life so Jezebel won't kill it, and then he's asking God to take it away. And he's trapped between what he knows he should be doing, and his heart is just not in that place. And guys, this is a really lonely place to be. You may be there and nobody around you really knows it. Maybe you try to share it with people and they don't get it. Or maybe you're not quite there, but you're feeling the attrition that's wearing on you. And you're winding down, losing perspective, and a sort of spiritual gloom is setting in. And when you first started out Christian and everything is exciting and everything's great and awesome, God is awesome and church is awesome and friends are great and And then eventually that fizzles out and you get stuck with trials and hardships. And you feel left hung out to dry. For Elijah, there was something behind this despair. And if we miss that, we miss the import of this passage. There's something behind his running. And it's a little bit more than I fear Jezebel. It's It's a little bit more than that. Bonnie just read the passage for you. In a few verses, we're going to see Elijah tells God twice what his problem is. And we'll see in a second, but I'll just, I'll just cue you in for a second. He tells God, look, I've done everything I can. Everyone's against me, and I'm the only one left. And that, second, that third one, he, he really emphasized that. He says, he says, I, even I only am left. And he says it twice. So it's not just that there's opposition. It's not just that the task is difficult. It's that he feels like he's alone. Where is everybody? I killed all these prophets and there's still nobody has my back. Well, you have your little servant. Eh, he's, he's still a rookie. I mean, where are the mature God, Yahweh following, prayer warrior, people that can share this burden with me? There's nobody. And I can't do it anymore. Maybe he thinks back to Moses when Moses felt the same way and Moses kept doing it. And he says, but I'm no greater than my father's. Just take my life. Pick somebody else. 
Loneliness will kill a person's spirit. I hope this isn't a cheesy example, but I think it really speaks to the human spirit. <coughs> One of my favorite movies is the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And I'm not going to spoil anything for you. But he's on this island. It's called Castaway. So if you go, what? He's on an island? I thought it was about marriage. Castaway is the name of the movie. So I didn't spoil that for you. He ends up on an island. He's, he's a Robinson Crusoe. And the plane that crashed was a FedEx plane because he worked for them. And these packages wash up on the shore. So it's Tom Hanks, the island, and a bunch of FedEx packages. And he starts opening them up. And there's ice skates and there's videotapes and some stuff he can use, some stuff he's not sure. And he opens one package up and it's a volleyball. A Wilson volleyball. And he pulls it out and over the course of the movie, he starts talking to the ball. He calls it Wilson. He stuffs straw in the top of it to make it look like hair, and he paints a little face on the front of it, and he talks to this ball. He calls it Wilson. At one point, he gets into an argument with the volleyball. And he takes the ball in his anger, and he throws it out of his shelter, and it lands on the beach somewhere. And then a couple of moments pass by, and he realizes, what did I do? And he runs outside of his shelter and starts hunting, looking for Wilson. Wilson! Wilson! And then he finds it. Oh, Wilson, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't do that again. What's going on there? You know, three survival experts were consulted throughout the course of that entire movie. How would he make a fire? How would he crack open a coconut? What's the best shelter you would find? But any survival expert will tell you that one of the number one dangers is losing your will to live. You'll give up on making a fire. You'll give up on trying to catch that fish. You'll give up on trying to crack open a coconut if you just want to die. And loneliness will take you there. And so we talk to a ball to give his mind some semblance of company so he can continue his will to survive. And brothers and sisters, Elijah is in a place where he feels that alone. God asks him what his problem is, but not yet. God doesn't ask him yet. I fast forwarded you to that, but the passage doesn't take us there yet because Elijah is not ready for that conversation. He's not ready to hear what God has to say to him. So God prepares him for that conversation. God prepares Elijah to have a talk. God God's not talking to him yet. He's preparing him for that encounter and puts him on a 40-day journey to meet with God. You and I read the passage in 40 seconds. Elijah had to go on a 40-day journey before getting to this response from God. Look at that in verses 5 through 8. Uh, well, beginning in verse 4. Um, no, verse 5. He lay down, slept under that broom tree that we just read in verse 4. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Now you have to see what's going on here. I don't want to get too psychological, but when you're in steep depression... 
You don't exactly hop out of bed and click your heels in the morning. Uh, when you're in a lonely, dark place, sometimes you don't feel like eating. And so he needs an angel to come and tap him and say, look, here's food for you. I served it up on a nice little platter. Eat it. Because I need you to take this journey and you're not physically ready for it yet. And so he eats it and then goes back to sleep. He's, he's, still, he's still checked out and then tap, eat again. And then sends him on this journey. Verse 8. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the Mount of God. I'm going to read that again. I want you to notice something. Elijah arose, ate and drank the food that was right next to him and went in the strength of that food that he just ate for the 40 days and 40 nights that he was to spend going to the mountain where he would meet God. That means that was his last meal, and that means that was a 40-day fast. Now, I don't know if any of you have done a 40-day fast. I did it once, but I still slept in a comfortable bed. I would take naps. You get tired. You don't have calories. He's on a hike for 40 days to get up to a mountaintop to meet with God. And so God is preparing him to see God. I just want to stop here for a second. If you're in a place where you need to see God, maybe you need to break your normal routine. I mean, maybe that busy schedule, that overtime, those friends you hang out with, keeping up Facebook, following up on those voicemails, going to that family reunion, taking the kids to the soccer game... Maybe you need to pull back from that because obviously you're not hearing God in the midst of all that noise. Maybe you read a passage in the morning and spend a couple minutes in prayer, but maybe that's not enough right now. Maybe you need to rethink your spiritual rhythm and pattern and do something drastic. Now, I don't think this passage is saying you want to hear from God fast 40 days. But I do think what this passage is saying is that sometimes we want to hear from God and we're not ready to yet. And God needs to do some work to prep you for the talk. Now, this is really this is really interesting. And I had to wrestle with this next next section for a while. It's weird because when God finally decides to meet with with Elijah, God asks him what his problem is. Elijah tells him. And then God doesn't say anything. He does a really weird, a strange, couple strange actions that left, leaves me scratching my head when I read it. And then God comes and asks him the same question again. Elijah gives him the same answer again. But the second time God responds to Elijah, the first time God doesn't respond. It's like, you know what, you're not ready. You're still not ready for this conversation. And then he does something weird. And then he's, let's try it again. So there's something going on in there that, that continues Elijah's, finishes Elijah's preparation to hear what God has to say. So let's look at that, beginning of verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Obviously, that's not a question where the answer is, well, I, Your angel told me to be... What are you talking about? You, he's not asking 
what are you doing here? He's asking, what's going on? How are you doing? In verse 10, Elijah tells him, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And instead of having the conversation, God decides, you know what, I'm going to do something really weird. Verse 11, he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. That's loud. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake More breaking of rocks, more pieces flying everywhere, more noise. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. The fire rose up. It was hot. It was loud. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Or a thin silence. Or a soft sound. There's different ways to translate it. But after the wind tearing the rocks, stuff is falling down. And and then an earthquake, the low rumble of the splitting of earth. And then the fire, just the, the loud roar and crackling of a fire. And then after all that, just... Silence. A silence you can hear. Is that a whisper? Is that just a soft noise? He goes out to check. And Elijah, in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. He gets the same answer. Verse 14, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then God, this time, decides to cue him in. In in the verses that follow, verse 15, he says, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Get back on your mission. Get back on your horse. And when you arrive, you're going to anoint, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to bow. And every mouth that has not kissed him. So God, here's what Elijah's saying. I am only left, and it's me by myself, and where is everybody else? He says, I want you to get back up. Go back out there, anoint two new kings and one new prophet. These two kings with the sword are going to finish off the job of eradicating Baal worship in Israel. This new prophet is going to succeed you. And by the way, I have 7,000 who've never worshipped Baal. Never bowed a knee, never kissed the statue. Don't belittle that. 
I have 7,000 that are still my worshipers. You're not alone. Because this isn't your kingdom. And this isn't your plan. And my kingdom doesn't rise and fall on the back of a willing prophet. I've got people. You're one piece to the puzzle, Elijah. And I have these other things going on that you didn't know about, but they're going on. Go out there trusting in that. I think he's meeting Elijah right where he is. You feel alone. You feel hung out to dry, but you're not. You feel like there's no one else helping you fight this fight, but you're wrong. You're dispirited because you feel like all of this is on you, and it's not. And so the question that I had to wrestle with in this passage, and I told you I wrestled with it, is what in the world does verses 11 through 12, the earthquake, the fire, the storm, the whisper, what in the world does that have to do with anything? We could have skipped that. It could have just been Elijah. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah says, I feel lonely. And then God says, well, I have these other guys, these other kings, this other prophet, and 7,000 other worshipers. Oh, okay. Wouldn't that have been, that would have made sense. We would have read it and go, oh, okay. What is with the, Elijah, what are you doing here? I feel alone. Hold on a second. Earthquake, storm, fire. Let me ask you again. What was that about? Somehow that prepared Elijah to receive the word about the other kings and the other 7,000 worshipers and Elisha. And I think it's in the repetition. The, the apparition, the things happen, and the author tells us again and again, but God was not, was not in that. So the wind and the storm came, and says, but God was not in that. You would think he would be. Because you remember when the Israelites approached Mount Sinai and there was loud noise and thunder and lightning and the mountain quaked and they go, whoa, whoa, Moses, just have him talk to you because if he talks to us, he's going to kill us. God was showing himself, I'm here to talk. And you remember the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day that would lead them and this is God present. This is God visually and in, in a most spectacular way showing himself to us. But this time when you read it, the storm comes and you go, here comes God. Here, here he comes. But he's not in that. But God was not in the wind or the storm. And then the earthquake. Well, definitely now. See, it was because it was the wind, but it wasn't the earthquake. But remember, Sinai shook, so now the mountain is shaking. But God was not in the earthquake. And then the fire. And you go, okay, the pillar of fire, the burning bush. God is an all-consuming fire. I get it. This is not, now, now Elijah's going to see God. But God was not in the fire. Now you have to watch that repetition. The, the author's trying to point you to raise your expectation. No, he's not in there. Well, you think it? No, he's not in there. Well, how about the? No, he's not there. And then in a most peculiar place is where Elijah finds God in a soft whisper. He wanted Elijah to hear him in the silence. In the silence. Not in the noise, not in the action, not in the big hurrah, not in the big intervention, glorious ways that God intervenes in lives, but in the silence. Elijah, you're real used to the big stage production, the lights and the show and the fire and the rain that stops and the rain that comes and the small cloud that turns into a famine ending, drought ending, rainstorm. And 
lives coming back, kids coming back from the dead and a jar that never runs out of oil. You're used to real big production stuff. And then when you don't see those big things, you're suddenly running for your life. I need you to learn how to listen to me in the silence. I need you to not just watch the production on stage, but recognize that there's a backstage crew. Things behind the scenes that you don't see lining up. But I have lining up. You don't see it, I see it. And to reveal to Elijah that sometimes God appears in the silence. Nobody knows who Jehu is. Nobody ever heard of Hazael. Elisha is a farm boy. But God is pulling those pieces together, unbeknownst to everyone else, to do something awesome. And he's doing it silently. You may need to see God here this morning, but you're not ready to yet because you're still looking for God in the spectacular. You're still looking for God in the noise. You're still looking for God in the miracles. You're still looking for God in the big interventions of life. But you don't know how to shh, quiet down. Listen for God in the silence. Look for God behind the scenes. Either the noise of life drowns them out, or sometimes the noise of religion. Now we, could, we could spin the wheels here and do a bunch of programs and do a bunch of stuff, but miss out on what God is really doing and what He's really saying to us because we're forsaking the quiet prayer time. And then the once a month Friday night prayer time dwindles, but our picnics get bigger. Our 15 minute prayer time before service might dwindle and our potlucks get bigger. And we're looking for God in the stuff that we can do, the stuff we can put our hands on. But we're not spending time with our eyes closed, face pressed down on the carpet and praying and listening. God, where are you? God, how are you leading? And that applies to our personal lives as well. And so we recognize that God doesn't always show up in big, spectacular ways in our lives. But we need to get comfortable with silence. I really hate to sound like I use using cheap applications. I was uh, talking with a preacher one time, and he said, and he jokingly said, "You know, the application of every sermon is pray more, read the Bible more, love Jesus more. Take your pick. That's the application." And so, you know, preachers try to struggle. What are some different things we can talk about? How what's a different angle? You know, we want them to leave here feeling like they have some. They're really prepared for the week. But we need to spend more time. In our quiet times, more time in prayer. And that's not a cheap application. Especially in the day and age that we live in, we're overdosed on noise and music and television and the iPhone and you're texting. And hey, I do all that stuff, except Facebook. It's not bad, but it's noise. It's noise. It's action. It's doing all the time. And it pulls us away from the withdrawing we need to do sometimes. Maybe 40-day fast. Maybe 10 minutes longer in the morning to just seek his face. You don't know how to crawl out of your dark place, but you're not, but you're not listening in the silence. How do we hear from God? I think sometimes it takes literal silence. I think sometimes you just literally be quiet. Listen to God. Read a passage of scripture. Reflect on it and just be quiet. Let him speak to you.
Sometimes I think it means if you feel like there's God seems silent in your life and you feel alone, you need to know that there's other, others with you in this. I think a preacher can take this passage and preach the entire sermon on the importance of small groups. I seriously do. Because where else are you going to find that you're not in this alone? That other people struggle with the things that you struggle with? Where else are you going to find people to pray with you concertedly and effectively over and over about these things that you need prayer over if you're not connected with people that are in the same fight with you? And that will lead to dejection and a dispirited loneliness. How do we hear from God? I just want to put these out there. It's a couple minutes that we have left. We would look back and go, boy, I wish I could have been there. A jar that never runs out of oil. I would love a tank that never runs out of gas. I wish I could go back there. You're feeling tired and alone and an angel comes, taps you on the shoulder and gives you a free cake. I love cake. I wish I could go back there. Your son dies, and it's okay. Go get the town prophet, and maybe the son will come back to life. I wish I could go back there. I guarantee you, Elijah would trade places in a heartbeat with you. Because all that Elijah preached about and all that the prophets wrote about was Jesus. When he would come and when he would fix what can't be fixed without him. And we are in a place where we can look back at the, the historicity of Jesus. No atheist, no scholar doubts that Jesus existed. Doubts that Jesus taught what he taught. And that Christ died and said why he died. Jesus promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for periods of time. But Jesus, because of what he did on Calvary, promised that when he ascends, the Holy Spirit would come and indwell every single believer. The believer that doesn't know how to quote John 3.16 and the believer who's memorized the entire Bible word for word, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. That's amazing. We have Jesus' word, which is scripture. He said, not a jot or tittle will go away from this word. This is the word. And we... We seek God and find God here. You don't need a mountain or an earthquake or an angel to tap you on the shoulder. You have God's revelation to you here. Jesus purchased like that song we sung, Precious Blood. And every season we're satisfied for this reason only. Christ was crucified. We can sing that. We can live that. And then Jesus' example. No one was more lonely than Christ on Calvary. He said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the skies grew black. And there's something weird that happened in the Trinity, that tight unit called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But one of them had to bear sin when the other two, well, two could not bear sin. And there was some sort of disjunct between them for the first time in eternity. Jesus was alone. His disciples split. And he was left alone. Elijah would have longed to see the effect of Christ on a Christian's life. So Christian Fellowship Church, how are you doing? Take a second and really block out the thoughts that are vying for a spot in your mind and answer that question for yourself. 
How are you, how are you really doing? You can give an automatic answer, fine. Or you can listen for the answer. And the silence that we need to get comfortable with to hear God. And when you feel alone and you feel like you're at the end of your rope, listen. Do what you have to do to quiet down and listen. Stop using uh, a dietary specialty needs that the physician told you so I can't fast. Fast a meal. Skip breakfast or something. And the time that you normally would have been eating breakfast, spend that time in prayer. Take a break from Facebook for a week. And when everybody asks where you were, tell them you were going to meet God. Really? Where? At home, but with the computer off. Pull back for a minute. Change your pattern and try to listen to what God is trying to teach you in this time that you feel alone and you feel like the silence is eerie. It's not eerie. God wants to speak. Take the time to pursue him in it. Let's pray.